Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday the 19th of October and in today's briefing, the superstar astronaut Chris Hadfield, who blasted to fame for this. This is ground control to Major Tom. So that's a cover of Bowie's Space Oddity from space. Um, That went completely viral at the time. And we're going to speak to the Canadian astronaut about all kinds of things, including his new book, but also his thoughts on climate change. The evidence is undeniable. It's visible from space. It's absolutely measurable everywhere around the planet. And no one country is going to be able to solve this problem, just like no one country causes the whole thing. So people have to work together. So that's astronaut Chris Hadfield in our briefing. That's in the second half of this episode. First, let's hit the headlines. Annika Smethurst is here. Queensland for Christmas. How does that sound? It was pretty good in my household. (laughs) Yes, the Queensland government has finally laid out its plans to reopen the border. This is really important that we unite Queenslanders, but we do it in the safest way. Okay, so here's the plan. At 70% double vaccination, which is expected uh, to be a month from today, November 17, that is, uh, vaccinated people will be able to come into Queensland, but we'll have to do two weeks of home quarantine then an 80% double vax, which looks like it'll be about a week before Christmas. Anyone who's vaccinated can travel to Queensland without quarantining. Overseas travellers, if they're vaccinated, will still have to do home quarantine. That will only end when the state hits its 90% double vaccination target. What do you make of this, Annika? Obviously, good news for you. Your husband's from Queensland. Yeah, we went up there last year. Weren't planning to go up this year, but would like to have some family down mm. and also just the freedom to go and visit family. I think this has been a real killer for a lot of people. We know that border's been pretty strong for a while, not just people that want to go and have a holiday in mm. lovely Queensland. Uh, I always thought she'd get there in the end. There was a lot of criticism about Anastasia Palaszczuk, but people living in Queensland have lived a pretty COVID-free life and seem pretty happy about it, but come Christmas, it would have been pretty hard to keep those borders shut, especially when, as you say, a lot of families want to reunite. Yeah, well, actually, when I think about my family on two different sides, there's people from Queensland that were hoping to be with us for Christmas, and I think it's it's really shown how, how much we're sort of integrated that, you know, Queensland having the border shut has affected so many families. I think the main critique or the most reasonable critique of Anastasia Palaszczuk is not that she wanted a really tough approach, it's just that there wasn't really a plan. So now that she's finally laid one out, even though it's tougher than some of the other states like New South Wales, at least we know where we're headed now. Yeah, I found that in Victoria. Once you have that roadmap, it makes lockdown and border closures so much easier. And the snap three-day lockdown in southern Tasmania has been lifted. There remains a small risk that we haven't actually got absolutely everybody identified who had some kind of contact with this with this case. Um, so I think we have to be very vigilant for the next week. That's Tasmania's Director of Public Health, Dr Mark Vetch, speaking there. This lockdown was called because a New South Wales man with COVID escaped from hotel quarantine after travelling into the state. Yeah, authorities say the 31-year-old man also hadn't been cooperating as they tried to track down as many as 120 contacts in the Hobart community. The lockdown was lifted last night after no new cases were uncovered, but southern Tasmanians will have to wear masks whenever they leave the home until Friday. Yeah, I imagine that guy wasn't too popular, but at least they've been able to get on top of it. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has told fellow Liberal MPs he's willing to push that net zero target by 2050 through Cabinet 
even if he can't get an agreement from the National Party. Nine Newspapers is reporting that the Prime Minister made the comments in the Liberal Party room meeting yesterday, and now today he'll address the Coalition Party room meeting, which includes the Nationals. Nationals leader Barnaby Joyce told Sky News it's important to get the support of all ministers before pushing the plan through Cabinet. A decision of Cabinet that is quite obviously and publicly known does not carry the views of Cabinet ministers has uh, a couple of outcomes and and some of them are not what you want for harmonious government. Mm, That sounds a little bit threatening, doesn't it, Annika? The government has all but ruled out any changes to that 2030 target. Independent and Green MPs have been pushing for the government to boost its 26 to 28% reduction, which is the current 2030 target, a little bit higher, but that's not something Barnaby Joyce is going to agree to. So it's all about net zero by 2050. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in those reports in in the nine newspapers that uh, they said Scott Morrison had been saying that signing up to net zero by 2050 was really important to our alliances with the US and UK and that was a big part of his justification for getting there. Yeah, I don't think he'd be that disappointed with that too. We've seen this come up in negotiations. We've had to hash out new trade deals with the UK and the EU after Brexit and they've been pretty insistent that we do more. Now, that gives him a bit of cover and it's also something a lot of national MPs can get behind because they love trade. They want farmers to be able to sell their goods overseas So it is a good sort of pull point for him. Now, remember, this isn't the whole National Party that are unhappy about this. It seems to be a few more Queenslanders, Matt Canavan, Keith Pitt, George Christensen, that are holding out on this one. There are 21 members of the National Party room. Now, not all of them are in Cabinet. Barnaby Joyce making the point there that it would be good to have everyone in Cabinet agree, but it's far from the only decision that's gone through Cabinet that's come down to a debate and a fight. And once you're a Cabinet member, you have to come out and agree. Mm. Well, I wish we could be in that Coalition Party room today to see how it goes down. Um, I guess we'll find out through the leaks if there are any. Northern Territory Chief Minister Michael Gunner is in a Twitter spat with US Senator Ted Cruz. The feud began when the Republican from Texas hit out at the Northern Territory for making vaccines mandatory for essential workers and bemoaning the lack of freedoms. He said that he used to see Australia as the Texas of the Pacific. So then Michael Gunner hits back, crafting a statement on Twitter saying that Texas has suffered almost 70,000 COVID deaths, whereas the Northern Territory has seen none and that the Labor chief minister admired Texas, but when it came to COVID, he was glad his territory was nothing like the US state. And staying in the US, the former US Secretary of State Colin Powell has died from COVID complications. Colin Powell was the first black secretary of state, and he was also well known for being one of the leading advocates for the 2003 Iraq war. As part of the Bush administration, Powell presented what he said was evidence that Iraq's then leader Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, but none were ever found following the invasion. Powell was fully vaccinated, but after contracting COVID, his family said he died of complications. All right, we're jumping out of here as Katrina and Jan interview Chris Hadfield. T-minus 31 seconds, and we're switching control. We have go for auto-sequence start. In 2013, Chris Hadfield was doing something that was literally out of this world. Ground control to Major Tom. 
Lock your Soyuz hatch and put your helmet on. They are the dulcet tones of Chris singing David Bowie's Space Oddity as he orbits the Earth at thousands of kilometres an hour. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the gravy. Pretty good voice there. So Chris is a Canadian astronaut and former commander of the International Space Station. And you might remember that video went viral. Tens of millions of views. It turned Chris into a celebrity astronaut. Yeah, well, he is, well, he has been firmly back on Earth for some time now. And he's written a book. It's a fiction book. It's called The Apollo Murders. And it is a murder mystery that is set in space during the Cold War. And Chris, we're so lucky to say, joins us now. Chris, welcome to the briefing. You are an Air Force colonel. You're an astronaut. You've flown in space three times. You've commanded the International Space Station. You did two spacewalks. You used to be an engineer, a downhill ski racer, a guitar player. (laughs) (laughs) There's more. You can sing. And now, of course, you write fiction too. So let me start with this question. Is there anything that you can't do? I'm, I'm a terrible dancer. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm, I'm very, you know, self-conscious about it. That's why I've always been a musician, because if you're in the band, you don't have to dance, I found. So, so I think, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm delighted you've you've heard of the new book. It's uh, it's doing ridiculously well all around the world. I'm really excited about it. It was a big gamble, and, and uh, I'm just so pleased with how people are reacting to the Apollo murders. Writing fiction is really, really hard. I've given it a go, failed spectacularly. How did you find that process and what made you want to write this book? For both of you, Katrina and Jan, imagine if you had just gone around the world 2,000 times and, and spent, you know, five months in space. What would you do with that experience when you got back? You know, would you just keep it to yourself or would you try and tell a loved one? Or how do you take this otherworldly, brand new human experience and share it? And that's why I do a lot of those things you mentioned, why I did, you know, the National Geographic series and the, why I've written other books and why I did the, the masterclass and such. It's to try and, and not just squander the amazing nature of what it's like to fly in space. And so I just gave myself a challenge. Could I write a, a thriller fiction about this and let people really see, you know, what it's like. And the book is like 95% true. Almost everything in the book really happened. And over half of my characters are real people. Some of them are still alive. So it was great fun weaving this wicked, uh, twisted plot in amongst real world events of spring of 73. I want to go back to that your first time in space. What is that day like when you open your eyes and you think to yourself, oh, this is the day that I'm going to be in space? What is that feeling? Well, I, I woke up that morning. I was I was at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida because that's where the space shuttle launched from. And oddly enough, I remember putting my socks on that morning. And NASA has no fashion sense at all. I was wearing white long underwear and black socks. It looked ridiculous. <laughs> but I was putting my black socks on and I thought, you know what? When I take these black socks off, I'm going to be in space or I'm, I'm going to die today. One of those two things. Oh, gosh. And so, so it was kind of a, um, you know, I was like, wow, today's the actual day. And and later that day, when, when we successfully launched Atlantis and and got to orbit and then I peeled off my big orange pressure suit and got to the point where I was, you know, down to my long underwear and socks and I took those socks off. I had this sort of celebratory little laugh. We have go for main engine start, T minus six. We have main engine start, four, three, two, 
one ignition and liftoff liftoff of atlantis a new orbiter joins the shuttle fleet and it has cleared the tower roll program initiated crew confirms roll maneuver so you've done a TED talk about fear. It's fantastic. Everyone should look it up. And you recount the moment you went blind in one eye while you're on a spacewalk. Tell us a little bit about that and what you learned about real fear versus perceived fear. Well, I, I went blind in both eyes, which is worse. Um, initially, in my left eye, and there, I was wearing a spacesuit, of course, outside of my first spacewalk. And so you can't touch your face. I mean, you're, you're encased in a in this pressurized cloth bubble of a suit. And when suddenly some sort of weird contamination got into my left eye and it just snapped shut like your eye does and stinging and starts tearing and I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't rub my eye. You know, it's it's trapped in this fishbowl of a helmet and then the tears don't fall. So the tears got bigger and bigger and then crossed the bridge of my nose into my right eye and blinded my right eye. So there I found myself unable to see outside of a spaceship, holding on to the outside of a spaceship, going around the world at, uh, you know, 28,000 kilometers an hour. And so it was a really interesting moment. But the real question isn't what happened. The real question is, what are you going to do next? That's always the only real question that matters in life. What are you going to do next? And so I thought about it. I went, you know, every time I blink, I'm blind. You know, I can't see. I don't die just because my eyelids are closed. And this is really no different than that. Maybe it's something bad and it's going to hurt my eyes. But I know everything about my suit. My eyes will probably be okay. I just need to solve this problem. And we'd practiced for it. And I wasn't out there alone. And um, I called down to Houston and we did a bunch of things and finally dealt with it. And it turned out to be just the soap and oil that we used to as like an anti-fog it had just gotten into my eyes. But that could have pretty catastrophic uh, consequences. Fortunately, my eyes teared enough and the, uh, the contaminated tear drain evaporated so that I could see after about a half hour. But it was a very introspective half hour being blind outside of a spaceship on my first yeah. try. One of the um, funniest things that I've seen you do, Chris, is um, rate movies about space and and talk about how they're similar to what it's like up there and how they're really not similar to what it's like up there. Can you give us a movie in your mind that is similar to what the experience is like up there and a movie that is just nowhere near? The best, I think, is Apollo 13, made by Ron Howard and starring Tom Hanks and and such, because they came down to Houston and they spent a long time with everybody there they were at the cape they worked really hard to make it real you know and to talk to the people that had actually done those things in apollo 13 talk to those astronauts two of them are were still alive so that one he worked really hard and obviously it wasn't perfect you got to condense a whole story down to two hours but it was quite good hey we've got a problem here what did you do nothing i stirred the tanks uh this is houston uh say again please houston we have a problem on the other hand there is armageddon where, where I mean, it's just, that movie is so execrable. I mean, it's just, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's a cartoon. It's a silly cartoon of what's going on. And, and it's just ludicrous, you know, and, it, and everything is just a one or two dimensional stereotype. And every technical detail is just so horrifically bad. It just, I mean, it's just comically ridiculous. So this is the part where we're supposed to just hold on real tight and uh, hope we don't die. Stand by for lunar roll. My inclination, lunar orbit. 
but you know, that, that's so you okay. don't it's throw anything at the TV when you're watching these movies, like because sometimes well, I, I, I watch a like- movie and it's set in a newsroom, <laughs> and I'm like, that's not how it is, and I get very mad. But if you watch, watch Armageddon, are you like throwing stuff at the TV at this point? No, I, well, I make an awful face when I sat and watched um, Gravity with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. That one, that one, uh, my wife was throwing stuff at the screen because it's so insulting to women. I mean, the most experienced astronaut in American history who's done 10 spacewalks and commanded the space station twice is a woman. And yet that movie, Sandra Bullock, is all this incompetent, panicky, you know, what's she even doing there? And George Clooney has to keep flying in to, you know, be the cowboy to rescue her and give her advice. It's just, I mean, it's set back little girls' realistic dreams, a generation, that movie. And yeah. so when a movie, if it's just being silly, then okay. I'm curious to know, seeing what you've seen from space and having that unique perspective of being able to see the planet in a way few of us will ever get the opportunity to in our lifetime, what do you think now about climate change? Has your opinion on that changed? And also, what would you like the rest of us to know? Well, opinions about climate change are fun, but they're useless. What really matters are facts. And what are you going to do about the facts? And and that's what a huge purpose of the space program is, is to actually measure the whole world. Because we go around it, as you say, every 90 minutes. And we have thousands of satellites up that are just measuring and taking the temperature of and the three-dimensional shape of and photographing of and trying to understand how does this spaceship that we all live on actually work? Do we have a climate change problem or not? You have to get into the facts of that. You know, what what's a natural process and what's a human-made process? And incrementally, bit by bit, we're actually assembling the truth. And so if an elected official chooses to ignore the truth, for whatever reasons, then they're a lousy elected official. The evidence is undeniable. It's visible from space. It's absolutely measurable everywhere around the planet. And no one country is going to be able to solve this problem, just like no one country causes the whole thing. So people have to work together. And that's where we need leadership. If everything's going perfectly, nobody needs leaders. But it's when there are problems that we actually need enlightened and informed leadership. And I I don't want to be an elected official and have to do battle every day like they do. But I really would like our elected officials, especially in the democratic countries, to do the right thing, not only by their particular constituents, but if possible, by the entire nation and hopefully by the entire planet. Well, thank you for sharing that insight with us because I can imagine as well as the beauty you've seen to see that devastating reality of the human impact of what we're doing to this incredible planet must be hard to kind of go to sleep at night some nights. Well, we're not devastating the planet. What we're doing is decreasing its ability to provide a good quality of life for human beings. The planet's tough as nails. It's been here for four and a half billion years. Life, we couldn't eliminate life on Earth if we tried. So life is tough and tenacious. You see that from space. But if we truly want to have a good quality of living for nine or 10 billion people, then we can't just repeat the patterns of the past. It just takes collective will. And and that starts both with our leadership, but also with each individual. Because it's easy just to blame the current elected official and absolve yourself of changing anything about your own patterns. And so it's not just some person who's in a job for three or four years, but each of us needs to really think about it and decide what our part's gonna be. 
So that was astronaut Chris Hadfield. His new book, The Apollo Murders, is out now. What a fantastic chat that was, Jan. I just feel like he's seen so much of the planet. Yeah. Um, he, what a, an amazing experience. But also, you know, having seen what he's seen, I think that would be quite a heavy burden to bear. It would be tough when you're listening to those climate change discussions to not get super worked up about it, I'm imagining. Yeah, well, I mean, he seems like somebody that's pretty calm, cool and collected. You'd have (laughs) to be, I guess. In in a crisis. Yeah, exactly. But just a word to you guys listening, YouTube Chris Hatfield, like the videos are so great. You can get yourself into a nice YouTube hole on a weekend looking up his stuff. Tomorrow on The Briefing, what is Net Zero. You're going to hear so much about Net Zero over the next few weeks as we head towards the UN summit in Glasgow. So what does it actually mean and how will it work? Listener.